Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. There was a woman that worked in our legal department, and she said to me, Sherry, you're so funny. Because people used to say, oh, you're so funny. You should just stand up. You should just stand up. And I just never saw myself ever doing that because all my life was about me being a character, imitating somebody to be myself I struggled with. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here with the magnificent Sherry O'Terry, and this is going to be a very inspirational episode. I know it. I feel good. There's a great great. energy here. (laughs) Bring the bar down a little. Okay. Lower your expectations, everybody. (laughs) So as I do, I'd like to introduce you and give you the proper introduction. Sherry O'Terry was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and later moved to Los Angeles, where she worked in promotion for A&M Records. She joined the Groundlings, which is an improvisational company on Melrose Avenue, which is very, very famous. And in 1995, the producers of Saturday Night Live saw one of her monologues, which led to an audition and for eventually being hired as a cast member. She appeared in her first film, A Liar, Liar, and several others, including Scary Movie, a great role in Inspector Gadget, Dumb and Dumber, When Harry Met Lloyd, Cinema Classiques, Shrek the Third, <laughs> Southland Tales, and Grown Ups 2 with Adam Sandler. In 2009, Sherry became a regular voice in the Fox Network's animated comedy series, Sit Down, Shut Up, which has always been critically acclaimed, which later moved to Comedy Central. Additionally, Sherry has made multiple guest appearances on TV shows such as Just Shoot Me, in which she was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award, Strangers with Candy, Jesse, The New Normal, Hot in Cleveland, and of course, as an emotionally unstable nanny on one of my favorite shows of all time, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, pound for pound, one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life the four foot 12 inch (laughs) sherry (laughs) otiri thank you everyone uh are we supposed to pretend like there's people in here (laughs) you can pretend whatever you want (laughs) 
<laughs> How you doing? Good. Good. I'm very, Good. very happy you're here. I have so many things to ask you, but I guess if you don't mind, before I ask you all the way back questions, could you let our audience know how your name has been pronounced wrong for all these years? Okay. When I got to SNL, <clears throat> my name was always pronounced Sherry O'Teary. Um, and then when I moved to L.A., some people said O'Terry, but it, I never corrected them because it was like mm, potato, potato. I mean, maybe I should have, but it, it just never bothered me um, because Sherry, E-R-I, is pronounced Airy. So O'Terry, E-R-I, should be. And I'm always in the crossword puzzle because of my name, too. It's going to be bad when, when it's the only thing they can't get. <laughs> um, but I said uh, I was walking down the hallway at 8H Studio, and this very tall, white-haired man walked up to me, and it was so wild. He goes, Sherry. <laughs> and I immediately knew who he was. He goes, Don Pardo here. <laughs> and I go, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> and he goes, I uh, would like to know, how would you like me to pronounce your name? And to me, I didn't think that there was any other pronunciation than Sherry O'Teary. And he, I go, uh, uh, whatever you think is best. And he goes, I like the rhyme. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I said, okay. I was just so excited. And then it started and I saw the opening, Sherry O'Terry. And then some people said, why is he pronouncing your name like that? And I said, it's Don Pardo. Leave him alone. He can do what he wants. You know, it just wasn't that big of a deal to me. But I always say Sherry O'Terry. I mean... You know, I don't think it's that big of a difference. I don't know. Well, you talk about nice people, and I consider you to be one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I promise you, I'm not saying that just because of everybody who knows you, every friend you have, and anybody who can call your, you a friend knows that. Everybody you've ever met knows that. Well, so. I was very shocked when you told that story because I thought to myself, man. He must have been treated like shit because I don't remember being that nice. <laughs> you would probably say that you had so much on your mind that you weren't well, treating no, people nice. Me, it's like you see the same people week after week. And it's like, to me, it's very easy to be nice. It's, it takes a lot of energy to take not be, especially when you see somebody, even though you may not know them or who they represent or what the deal was, you know. But if you see them week to week like that, that always amazed me, you know, people that could you see week to week and could just turn and not say hi or or pretend that they you know they never saw you i mean that's a, that's crazy to me but you know we were all scared no but you didn't give the illusion on the outside that you were scared you might have been scared on the inside but you didn't give the, that illusion but didn't you say it the once that i was like this fragile little bird yes you were but you, you know, most fragile little birds, for some reason, they fly the fastest and they're above the fray and they somehow are able to get away from all the danger. And I think that sometimes it's like a paradox. And I know what you're saying. People think fragile little bird with a broken wing or whatever. But I didn't think of you as fragile. I thought of you as a delicate little bird, but that was somehow surviving in this 
group of seagulls and uh, barely. But I wanted to, barely. But what I wanted to say was I was you, hanging by a thread. I doubt it. But you, as a nice person, we mentioned the late Don Pardo, and Don Pardo. For those of you who who never had the opportunity to meet him or know him, what a beautiful beautiful man i honestly i mean i swear to you i almost want to cry because it's like he just the guy was just all love he was nothing but love and he would always talk about uh florida and his grandchildren and um you know he, he almost made it like a normal place you knew you were going to see him you always knew he was going to be there and it's like almost this grandfather um and all really he cared about was having you know going to work so sweet to everyone and you know going to his place in florida and playing with his grandchildren it was just like oh just loved him you know he was like a one of those lights that you know that always beamed in a place that could feel sometimes so dark you know yeah it was a ray of light and mm -hmm. and what's interesting is that before we get into the backstory there were a few different people like that there were these wonderful rays of light there and you and they were there year after year there was a a nurse that was probably smaller than you yeah, that yeah, was there yeah, yeah. Um, and she was just so incredible she was just always so nice and, and there were so many people like that amongst the craziness that were so calm and kind. There and were so many characters too behind the scenes. Like Will's dresser was a woman named Dixie and she used to be a stripper. And she one time brought in a, um, a picture of herself in a huge martini glass naked. And Will's like, mm, I don't know if I need to see that. <laughs> but it was funny because when I did Robin Bird, she goes, you know, she talked like this, Dixie, you know, um, I remember when she got her start, we were doing the same club in Jersey. <laughs> and, you know, I just wanted to get my pajamas on and, and lay in bed and just, you know, tell me the story of when you and Robin Bird just first started out. <laughs> Auntie, it was really cute. I want to go way, way back. Okay, way, way back to Upper Darby as opposed to Lower Darby, Pennsylvania. Well, there was a difference. You're born in Philadelphia. You grow up there. So tell me about... I grew up right outside in the suburbs. Yeah. So tell me about the lifestyle of your family, the socioeconomic class of the neighborhood, and tell me what your first inspiration was to be in the entertainment business, and, and what was it that made you say, you know, I, I want to get involved in this crazy business? Uh, I never said that. Um, as I was growing Never up, said that in your life? When I was a kid growing up, no. You know, I just looked at it like there was something wrong with me. And wait, wait, wait. Something wrong with you. I what never was wrong saw with you? myself as necessarily talented or gifted. I just knew that I always felt like I don't know why I think this way or why I live in my imagination so much. You know, I would be inside and I grew up middle class family. My, my, my mother and father weren't together. So my dad lived somewhere else. Wait, when did they get divorced? I was like in second grade, which is bone crushing at that age. Oh, and I got glasses. It was like, geez, what a bad year. No LASIK surgery. Back no then. LASIK surgery. And the frames were thick and dark. 
Um, <laughs> and then my Nana made me get my a shag haircut and it was like insult to injury. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, uh, so, and I was a middle child. Were you, was, were you trying to score at eight? No, but all the girls on my street are Irish and just had blonde hair and freckles and peaches and cream skin. And even though I'm half Irish, I had like a little bit of a mustache and I had like, you know, a little bit too much of an eyebrow, you know, and it was, I looked very uh, Italian and, um, yeah. And what kind so, of things were in your imagination back then that you didn't understand? Well, you know, growing up in my uh, house, it was to say it was chaotic is just it's an understatement. So it was your mother, you and who else? Was... My brother and my sister. I was in the middle and um, it was completely uh you know, chaotic. Everybody says that and everybody knows their own only knows their own chaos because everybody's comparing themselves to the family up the street. And even the family up the street wasn't really, you know, all together. But um, I didn't make a lot of friends. And so uh, I was so needy for attention from my mother who could not give it. She just she was a mess. You know, uh, could you define the mess? Um, like was she emotional mess or yeah. was she? Yeah. And this was before, you know, real therapy or antidepressants. And I remember years ago, my sister saying to me, you know, mommy's on antidepressants. I'm like, oh, great. Now she, yeah, well, the damage <laughs> is done over here. Uh, <laughs> good for her. So, um, <laughs> So it's kind of like I always looked at her to look back at me to find my identity, almost. She looked toward your mom to find your identity. Yeah, it's almost like if she looked back at me, for some reason, I always felt like I was born without an identity. And what it made me do and, you know, to be needy or to be sensitive or creative, there was no room for that. That spelled weakness. And, you know, I remember as a kid, whenever I said anything was wrong, my Nana would say, oh, listen to Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> and I was just like, who's Sarah Bernhardt? And I never knew who she was, but I was called it by my Nana all the time. And then I found out she was an actress and I actually bought a book on her, you know, um, uh, like last year. Uh, and it was really, you know, but I felt like I just used to watch people. I used to study people and then I would daydream during the day and I would be in my room and it was like the Sherry show in my head and I would also, was, music was a big part, and I would always picture myself singing the songs. And, yeah, so I I really, and it, and it didn't help me be present as I got older, you know, because it's almost like I could go into my own head and just disappear, and no one was wondering where I was. So it was, not to make me say, you know, feel sorry or anything, but it's like a lot of kids, how do you cope with not getting 
basic needs met. You know, you kind of find ways as a kid and they end up not working for you as you get older, of course. And then you kind of, you're already wired that way. So I feel like, um, oh, what I used to do when I was a kid, I would always pay attention to whatever made my mother laugh because her happiness was my happiness. If she was happy, I did everything to make her happy. Um, I would clean the house. I would compliment her. I would, what I didn't realize back then was I was mothering her. And well, I remember when she wasn't sleeping during the day and I would come from school, I would be so happy because she would have albums, comedy albums on. And she'd be downstairs like being a mom and doing mom things. And I would be so happy. You know, she'd be in the kitchen or making a craft or something like that. And um, what kind of comedy? Album? She listened to uh, like John Biner, um, Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, Cheech and Chong. Um, and. Uh, oh. She she really loved listening to albums, but because when I heard her laugh, I started studying the albums and I really started listening. So as a child, I was kind of understanding comedy, adult comedy, um, by just listening and then understanding things in the context of the sentence. And I loved listening to it. Then I started getting it. And like I would laugh. Like and Cheech and Chong and her sister Mary Elephant and all that stuff and Woody Allen doing the story about the um, uh, hitting hitting the horse on uh, on the way to the the, the, the masquerade party uh-huh. and uh, or was Bill it the, Cosby. Was it the elk or was it the horse or something? Yeah, it was the elk, it, like a deer, a deer, a deer. Mm-hmm. And then Bill Cosby, you know, um, play on the playground. That's cement. Yeah. All of them, I had them memorized. And I remember being like in second grade or something like that. And it was a kids could tell a joke. And I raised my hand and she said, Mr. Thierry. And I was like, uh, I went to the doctor the other day and he told me um, I was schizophrenic. I said, no, I'm not. Neither am I. <laughs> and, and the nun goes, put your head down, Mr. Thierry. <laughs> and I remember being like, oh, rough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so i then i would start when i would see other people i would go out and i would i'm a jew i don't remember the nuns oh well late teacher um i would uh, go to i would imitate soap opera actors i was hooked on the soap opera young and restless still watch it and i used to imitate um soap opera acting or I would watch Dinah Shore and she would always, you know, do a, a butcher a pop song, you know, left a good job in the city, <laughs> working for the man every night and day. And I would go up and repeat, you know, in front of the kids and I would just start, you know, doing the imitating Dinah Shore. And so the weird thing was, was that I wasn't making people laugh. I felt like. I was completely invisible, you know, so, um, and it wasn't too far from the truth in my house, you know, or even with friends, because once I wasn't making somebody laugh, it was kind of like, uh, I really didn't know what to do or say. Um, 
So, uh, but I studied television and, you know, the movie that I, that I wrote is all reflective of, you know, this kid who lives inside of her head and is so influenced by television and she just acts out, well, everything that she sees. And it's so weird because if she's not, she doesn't even know who she is. You go through grade school, middle school, and then you get into high school, which always is a a traumatic time for not only yeah. <laughs> young men and young women. How do you utilize humor throughout high school? Well, to... I really didn't have, I had like one friend growing up. And was it imaginary? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. But she really didn't have a sense of humor. And it sucked. It really, really sucked. So um, I when I got to high school, the good thing about high school is I fell into a bad crowd. And the one thing about and I went to an all girls Catholic High school. What is a bad crowd when it comes to an all girls high school? Oh Catholic. my gosh. One of my friends was the like main drug dealer in the school. And now here's a funny thing. I did not do drugs in school. I was a virgin all through high school. Hey everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Well, isn't that the way it's supposed to be for Catholic girls? Not at my school. They called it. The whorehouse on the hill. The whorehouse on the hill. Yeah. So out of every hundred girls at your high school, that was all Catholic girls' school, how many girls had lost their virginity? Now, do you really think I took a poll? I know it was me and the girl I grew up with. They were virgins. We were, yeah, we were virgins. So there were two out of a hundred that uh. were virgins. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I... You know, I only knew my myself and now were you a virgin because you wanted to be or were you a virgin because the I men was a were... virgin because I was scared half to death to have sex. Oh, but there were men all over you. N no, <laughs> no. Yeah. Once a guy knows you're a virgin, though, you know, there's. When like when you're 17 or 16 or 17 and guys find out you're a virgin, it's kind of like, um it makes you even more attractive to them because um, they all think that they're going to be the first. And, you know, but I kind of went out with nice guy. Like when I said no, like I truly meant it. And uh, I remember going out with a guy in high school and we were making out on the floor in my house. 
and I'd been going out for, with him for a long time and I loved his family because I did not have that kind of a family and I always wanted it, you know, the kind where the mother's like, um, how's, you know, are you hungry? Or something like that. And that's what his family was like. So he used to go there all the time. And I remember Becky now on the floor and <laughs> he, we're, we're laying down and he, remember that game, tip it? No, not tip it. Where you press the, uh, the dome. And yeah. The, uh, and y- the trouble. Uh, trouble. Yeah. Well, I remember he put his hand on the top of my head and pressed it like that. And all I thought was, that's how you press the dome on trouble. <laughs> and then like he did it again. And I'm thinking, what is he doing? <laughs> I'm making out. And then like he does it again. <laughs> and then I remember saying, what are you doing? Like I had no idea. And what did he tell you? It's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> And gets up and leaves. Well, I tell his sister that Frank is pushing me to have sex with him. Think I think that night he was just pushing me to give him a blowjob. But um, and I was like, I said to his sister Bernadette, you know the game Trouble. <laughs> well, the funny thing was, uh, he got in so much trouble. <laughs> funny thing was, he got in so much trouble. His family sat him down and said, She is a nice girl. <laughs> That's how close I was to his family. And the worst part of breaking up with him. When I broke up with him, it was like, I, I, I loved his family so much. Did his sister give you advice on what he was trying to do? Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Uh, she didn't give me any advice, but um, uh, I remember she laughed. They're such a sweet family. Now, but, I feel like I'm dig- really digressing here, but I think that the, the you know, our audience is always fascinated by certain things. I, I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever asked this before. So here you're in an all-Catholic girl's school. You're so scared to have sex. Who do you identify that you finally decide, okay, this is the guy I'm going to make it all happen Well, I'm going to tell you something. In ways that I was so unsure of myself, you know, in that way, there was no question in my mind. It was like I had strength. Because, you know, if someone said, aren't you afraid of losing him? And, and I think it was, I was naive because I hadn't been really hurt yet. And I said, no, Uh, if he leaves, then, you know, maybe he just really doesn't care about me anyway. I was very naive. And it was so great before you're hurt and before you start to, you know, do things for the wrong reason. I had never been hurt, you know, uh, by a guy before. And so, um, I never worried about it. Never thought about it. I had boyfriends for a long time and, you know, we would do other things, but, um, and then I was 21, met this guy 
And uh, actually, my my friend who was the drug dealer who had had sex at, I think, 10. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember being down the shore. We would go to the Jersey Shore in high school. And I'm like, and I would be with those, you know, we would all get a house and go, Mary Jo, it, Oh, I said her name. It burns when I pee. All right, don't worry about it. what you have is a yeast infection. And then what you, all you need to do is I'm going to give you this, and then you're going to drink this. And it was like she was, she was truly a doctor. I knew she liked him a lot, and she liked the guy who you yeah. Know. And she would always talk about how great the sex was, and I used to love listening to that stuff. Right, and then she went away to college, to school, and for I don't know. Almost a year, he pursued me. And I was like, I would never, ever, ever. It had a long, long time. And then I called her on the phone. And they, he wasn't, you know, he stopped seeing her a long, long time ago. So you called her and asked her for permission. Yeah. What did she say? She's like, you know what? I mean, this girl was cool. And we are tight to this day. I'm at, As a matter of fact, I'm going to her house Christmas Eve in Philly. Um and I remember saying to her, uh, she just said to me, listen, I can't say when I see you, it's going to be cool that, I, that I'm going to want to be friends, but I really respect you for calling me. And that was it. And she didn't talk to me. And for like two years, I went out with her for two years. So he was amazing. The funny thing was, So he was, it was, he was so huge that, you know, Mary Jo was way better fit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's like, <laughs> I think I'm like a small guy's dream. You know, well, uh, uh, clearly I, I, I should have made my move earlier then. Um, <laughs> um, I always think to myself uh, when I'm when I'm if I if I go out with somebody like, you know, you go out with somebody who's a wonderful person. And I've shared this with a few people and you're there with them and you're you know, you're at that point where you're about to get intimate. And then you realize to yourself. Jesus, this person is an amazing person. Chances are they've been with the guy who flew them all over the world in a jet. They probably, you know, slept with the Italian guy. They've probably been with the athlete who's hung like a buffalo. They've been with every single person in the world. And now they're about, about to embark on me. And I think to myself, how am I ever going to compete with all these people that this person has been out with. And then I realized all I have to do is find somebody like Sherry O'Terry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what I'm good for. <laughs> Thanks. There's more to me than just a tight vagina. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I like when people look at my feet and they go, oh, wow, your feet are so small. I'm like, you know what they say. <laughs> <laughs> and what was worse is I had this ability when I was a kid. I don't know where this is going. I know. I probably shouldn't say it. No, 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 no. You have. No. This is hilarious. So you have this ability. I could do kegels. And... 
make myself have an orgasm. Really? So you could just be in like history class? Exactly. That's fantastic. I had more orgasms in church as a kid. (laughs) Now, how did you keep quiet? I kept quiet. Or did you just do them during the choir segments? (laughs) No, no. It was... It was just like the weirdest thing because I was, it wasn't like I was, I was very inhibited. So I didn't really explore, you know, very much. So, you know, hey, it's not touching yourself. No, it was that, was that considered. It's very sick and sad. Was that considered legal in the eyes of the Catholic church? Well, you, you, you imagine doing that through your childhood and then like, you know, going out with long dong silver and it was. Yeah, it was not good. I remember seeing this comedian when I first started. His name was Melvin George III from Long Island. And he had this joke. He said, listen, I don't wish that I was blessed down there. I am a black man, but I don't wish that I have what everybody thinks I have. Because what good is it? What good is it when you're about to really get down and do it? And all the blood rushes from your brain and your body down there and you faint. So, (laughs) well, he was a downer. Let's see the glass half full. Let's see the dick half full. (laughs) That sounds familiar. Anyway, so keep going here. So then, do you go to college? Um, No. What I believe me that I even graduated high school was, you know, um, was pretty was pretty good. Um, I. Right after, my mother said, you need to get a job. And so she worked uh, downtown, downtown Philly, um, at for steamship agents. And then my sister worked for ste- for another competing steamship, you know, because they had the port there and everything. Um, Import-export containers, that oh, it was horrible, horribly boring. And then I got a job, and I was the worst secretary ever. And I would just remember one time going home. I didn't think I was working as secretary. I was so bad. Um I was walking, I was going home and I would take the bus and then the train to go home. And I stopped on a corner and I just started bawling my eyes out. And I was thinking, why am I not happy like everybody else? Like, why isn't status quo, you know, good enough for me? And why am I so unhappy? Why isn't, you know, because the thing is, even if you had a miserable job, you usually had a boyfriend and you were planning on getting married. And, you know, it was always you were looking to something else to make you happy. And um, it was just terrible. So I remember I quit. I quit or I got fired. Um, And uh, I had a series of jobs, you know, like kind of like secretarial jobs and then I remember um I always wanted to be in the music business I wanted to sing but I knew my voice wasn't good enough I did get in a band we played mostly in this guy's basement were you a lead singer yeah and uh I just I really couldn't sing and I knew it so I, um, I thought I'm going to get in the business so bad. And I looked into, uh, music, um, sound studios and, uh, in Philadelphia and music production companies, you know, very few, but there were some and, 
you know, it was so hard to get in and I had no prior experience. Um, but I gave him my best shot and I went around and gave my resume to every music, you know, production house and everything. So, um, so, but you, you, when you made the decision to move here, well, I worked at a place called the Chestnut Cabaret and it was all original material and my boyfriend, but this was in the East coast mm -hmm, after that guy, after the guy for two years, right? I fell in love for the first time. And so you never told the guy who was hung like a buffalo that you loved him? No, I did. But I realized, you know, I, I, like I did in the beginning, but then, you know, he was very possessive and it was a strange thing for me. It's like when no one really pays attention and all of a sudden you're like someone's world, it's like, whoa, what's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but anyway, after that guy, I fell madly in love and he was a drummer. Oh, girls, don't date a, date a drummer because you are the last to leave the club. <laughs> oh, I would, I would they have be, to pick up their own. Oh, yes. And it's like, why couldn't you play the flute or something <laughs> light on the go? Um, but I was crazy about him. And he used to take me because he was a jazz musician, but he made money more doing, you know, like cover rock and stuff. So um, we went out for two years. And, and when he broke up with me, that was it. I like that was the greatest hurt I've ever had. And I remember, uh, and then my best friend had passed away during that time. And I was like, okay, I must not be suicidal because there is, you know, it was, I was like in a really, really dark place. And I'm like, well, I got that going for me. Uh, so I just thought there's nothing I had for me here, nothing. And then, I just really did think, I was like, all right, what, was you, what is the biggest dream you could imagine? And then I, th all my life I wanted to move to, lived in California, but I really wanted to stay in Philly and have my own family and live around the corner from my sister and, you know, my friends. And, um, and then I was like, well, this is it. This is the time. There is absolutely nothing for you here. Um, so I saved up money. And there was a girl that I worked with that was going to move out with me. Last minute, she backed out. And so I moved out anyway. And I remember thinking, I, I came out, my brother was out here. Because my brother, my brother was really uh, uh, hard to handle for my mother. He was bad. He was always getting in trouble, really bad trouble. And so my mother sent him out to live with my father, who was living in LA at the time. And then, but when I moved out, my brother already had like, a kid, um, and, uh, my father had new, moved to Nashville and I stayed with him for like about a month. And I remember telling everybody before I moved out, I was so excited. Guess where I'm going to be living. And I was just, I didn't know California. So I was like, Panorama city. <laughs> and people would go, why? <laughs> I'm like, why? <laughs> I mean, I just was thinking Panorama City must be amazing. <laughs> and I remember getting there and I was like, ooh, there's a lot of Mexican restaurants. <laughs> and my brother's like, Sherry, you have no idea. And um, so that was pretty funny. But I mean, to make the move. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. From where you were to here, that took a lot of, I mean, you gave, you saved money, but still you're coming here with nothing. You're coming here with a dollar and a dream. You don't have a job. You don't have anything going on. Just a dream. Yeah, I tried to get, because there was a long time I was uh, waitressing and bartending. Um, I just couldn't sit in an office anymore. I couldn't stand it. So I tried to get my bad secretary skills back. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I'm the worst. And what I did was when I moved out here, I got a job waitressing at Carlos and Charlie's on Sunset. Of course. And... Uh, and I was doing that, trying to get, I was sending, I was so naive, my resume to every major record label. And I was, I really was, I even tried so hard. And, and then my father's friend knew a girl who worked in promotion at AM Records. And the two top record uh, companies I wanted to be at was AM or Warner Brothers, because they had the best artists. They were alternative music before alternative music was mainstream. You know, they did not have uh, radio ready people, uh, radio, you know, heavily played. They had some and that's how they made their money, but they were really into the artists. But anyway, um, so he gave this girl a call and said, and all it was, was she called down to human resources and said, a girl, uh, Sherry O'Tiri is going to call. Would you just give her an interview? And that was it, right? And so I got the interview. And it was for music publishing, which was um, Alma Worthing at the time, Rondor Music. And there was a position open as a um, as an, um, receptionist. And I was like, oh, great, because the receptionists don't have to do anything that take any skill. So I worked there. And the funniest thing was I got along with the writers. I didn't really fit in with the people that worked in the offices, but man, did I love the writers. And there was a, there was a woman that worked in our legal department. And she said to me, Sherry, you're so funny. Cause people used to say, Oh, you're so funny. You should do stand up. You should do stand up. And I just never saw myself ever doing that because all my life was about me being a character, imitating somebody to be myself. I struggled with, you know, and then to be myself on stage, 
Like that was further the furthest thing that I could picture myself doing. And then she said, sure, you're so funny. You should do the groundlings. And I said, what's the groundlings? And she said, it's an improv troupe. And I, this is how um, sheltered I was. I go, what's improv? And she goes, it's comedy that you kind of make up as you go along. And I was like a cartoon character. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I sauntered down to the groundlings. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, I would like to take your classes. And, you know, you had to audition just to get in. And I started taking the classes and it truly turned my world upside down because I didn't know something, a place like this existed. And then I saw who had been there previously, like Lorraine Newman and, and Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman and, and so many people. And I was just like, I grew up like so many people. I was glued to Saturday Night Live because I used to think to myself, if I could do anything, it's that. Like, I'm made for that. But you, I would have never dreamt that big. You used to say that to yourself when you were, when it first started in Because 75. what I thought was, that's pretty much what I do all the time. You know, like, what I think is something wrong with me is pretty much what I'm doing. You know, like, I would, I would go into characters and other people didn't know it, but I did it to entertain myself. I would use people to entertain myself, you know, um, and I still do that sometimes, but, uh, you said you had this very amazing quote in Rolling Stone. I believe when you were on the cover of Rolling Stone, you said, quote, when I was a kid, I used to just study people. Now as an adult, I'm being everybody I ever watched. Yeah. Like, I guess. You know, because in the Groundlings, you, you know, I really was into the character development, you know, because there's three different, there's improv, there's writing, and then there's characters. What I like to do now is I like to sort of wrap up with some, I'm going to mention some things. It could be a sketch, it could be a person, it could be something, and, and just something that comes to mind that means something to you. I'll start with Betty White. So I worked with on Hot in Cleveland. I wasn't invited to the um, show that she hosted, but I did get to do Hot in Cle Cleveland. And oh my God, what everything that you think, she is in more. It was really funny because we'd be, in, she uh, had an assistant and the girls were so supportive. Well, uh, they're, they're, they're supportive of each other. It was one of the best environments I'd ever been in. And, um, Betty, uh, when she wouldn't remember her line and there would just be a real long pause and then she just knew it was her line because no, no one was saying she would just go, oh. she called her assistant nurse and she would just go, nurse, <laughs> nurse. <laughs> and she would yell the line. Um, man, what? <laughs> I thought I said to the girls, you know, Wendy Malik, what a doll and Valerie. And I was just like, this is such a wonderful environment and they're also appreciative too, you know? Absolutely. It's Keenan Ivory Williams. I absolutely love him because what he'd started with in living color, I watched that show all the time and he directed scary movie. And when I did, I just had to meet him. I didn't even have to audition. And it was really funny because I'd done so many 
weird characters on the show that if I did a movie, it was always for a quirky looking person. And like I was kind of mimicking Courtney Cox's character who was so pretty, you know, and it was like neat and not to be doing, you know, like a, a troll of some kind or, you know, something crazy. Um, so I met him and he was probably one of the best directors. I enjoyed him. I enjoyed watching him. He was so kind and trusted my instincts. Like the guy that played my camera guy had no lines through the whole movie, but you know, when our downtime, he would help me rehearse. And then I would like, say, you should say this, you should say this. And then, uh, we would do it in front of Keenan and I would say, Keenan, could you, we've been rehearsing? Could, could I, could we do a rehearsal? And I'm telling you, there wasn't one thing that I did it. He said, no. <laughs> and this guy ended up having all these lines because we worked so well together and he was just so, so supportive and wonderful um, and smart and handsome and he smelled good. All right, I'm going to stop. Uh, Mike Myers. Uh, he was on the show and I was very excited about him being on the show because I loved his characters you know, watched him this whole time, but he was just very, very quiet. And I remember I wrote a, uh, Rita Del Vecchio, the Italian woman of Portion. I had, I wrote him in the scene. I think I had him as a priest, maybe I'm not sure, but, um, the scene didn't get it. I, I, you know, I didn't, he was very, very quiet and kept to himself, but I remember his wife was very warm. Jim Carrey. Um, that was probably one of the best shows ever of my five years on SNL. Um, from beginning to end, his sketches were flawless. And I didn't see him now, but I just heard he was flawless again. And I remember him saying, Sherry, I have to do the cheerleaders. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And so we wrote cheerleaders for him. And uh, I just remember watching it in dress. I saw it. I went upstairs in between just to see how it looked on television. And there was a thing where I was pulling, putting a pump down and they were making their asses uh, look like balloons. And when I pumped, their ass went up, pumped again, their ass went up higher. And then what I saw was Jim was just going like this, not in sync with the lever and so i just can't remember i remember running down and opening knocking on jim's door and i go jim um just uh let me see raise your ass with each pump <laughs> and he's like sure and i remember and he goes got it and then i and he was like a kid he's like all right got it and then i ran out and i just stopped myself i just ran into jim carrey and said <laughs> Raise your ass with each pump. <laughs> like we were adults being children. And um, then I have to say, uh, and he did, and talk about Steve Corn. Steve Corn had brought a sketch in so many times that got turned down, and it was Lifeguard of a Jacuzzi. And so many times it got turned down. And I just have to give it to him because he. I remember Jim did the show, and once you put a sketch up once, twice, no one wants to hear it again. Right. It's very, very hard. Well, this was like, I don't know how many times that jacuzzi sketch had been up. Jim wanted it 
And I remember watching it in rehearsal. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. I was crying. It was and I, th- I just thought to myself, to serendipity. This was like so great. You know, he had to wait and wait in the humiliation. And then like one of the best guys decides to do it and kills it. And I just love Steve for sticking with it. One of the hard things to do there, you know, because people are like so over things very quickly. Persistence. And, right. And uh, and then that summer, Jim had invited Will over and Will and I over to his house. And he had some fancy pants people there. And um and after dinner, I said, do you mind if I look, look around? And he said, no, go ahead. So I was looking all around the house. I went into this room and I saw a life-size glass enclosed of the mask from the mask, you know, the, um, the movie. costume. And then I looked next to it and it was um, the Joker. Yeah. No, yeah the Joker. The re- and then I looked and it was Ace Ventura. And then... There was another one. And then I looked and there was the cheerleading uniform. And I am telling you, one of those moments I'll never, ever forget. Like that he put that on par with all of those things. And I ran out and said, Jim. Well, first I saw Will and I go, Will, you got to see this. I grabbed him and I took him into the room and he looked and he goes, oh my gosh. And... It was, I'm telling you, that was a thrill. That was a thrill. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Larry David. Um, oh my gosh. I remember when he called me at home. Here's one of those things where you thought you'll ask questions later. Because I was so excited that he called me at home. I really wasn't listening. <laughs> and he was like, well, okay, what we're going to do is we're thinking of you, you know, you babysit this kid and, uh, you know, there's, uh, you're trying to stop me from going into use the bathroom at this house. And, uh, the kid's got a big penis and I'm just, I'm listening to him like as if he's on stage and entertaining me. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) he's good, you know? Uh, and I was so nervous and excited, did not listen. Well, I show up on the set. And I'm waiting desperately for paper because no script came. Not one stitch of paper came before I even got there. And I'm waiting and I'm like calling my, my agent. I'm like, hey, how about a fax? <laughs> I kill for a fax. Anything? And he's like, uh, yeah, not yet, Cher. I'm sure you'll get a beat sheet or whatever. And then I show up, still nothing. And I was so scared. And I said to Jeff Garland, I go, hey, Jeff. Jeff, was so Jeff sweet. Garland, the co-creator and yeah. executive producer. I go, um, hey, is there going to be like a script coming out soon? My hair and makeup's being done. Still nothing. And then I'm starting to shake where you can see it. And I'm like, oh, uh, I'm not ready for this. And, but I was so afraid to ask. So, I'm telling you that that phone call was all the information I got and I didn't even listen. So he goes, Oh, and I'm literally shaken. And he goes, you all right? You know? And I go, oh, sure. <laughs> and he goes, um, all right. In this scene, uh, you're going to just try and make me not, not, you're not going to let me get into the bathroom. I'm going to try and use the bathroom and action. <laughs> and I remember going like, Right before I go, do I succeed? Do 
who I like. You don't know how much to push, what to. And I am telling you, I was never, ever so nervous in my life. Um, I wish I had a heads up, but I could not prepare a single thing. And uh, as the show went on, I got the hang of it a little more, but still, I like to prepare. In, uh, improv is not was not my favorite thing at the Groundlings. I have to say sketch and character and writing were my favorite things. Improv, you know, you're supposed to trust yourself. I can't do that shit. I can't trust myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want a plan. <laughs> Adam Sandler. Um, hmm. I met him at a party that was at Paramount and I'd been on the show and I was standing at a table and remember Chris Farley coming over and he was just a beaming light of love. He was like, Oh man, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. And I was just smiling from ear to ear. The whole, t he never swayed from his personality of being, you know, the most beautiful light. And I remember Adam, I was, and Adam was standing next to him. He wasn't really saying anything, but you know, when Chris was doing his thing, he was doing his thing. And then I was standing at a table and I heard someone in back of me and he goes, uh, I think there's enough heat around you. <laughs> and I turned around, it was him. And I go, what? He goes, I think there's enough heat around you. And I had no idea what he meant. And I wasn't even sure exactly maybe what he was saying, but, and I went, hi, <laughs> I'm Sherry. And, and then I would see him at, him at some parties, but, you know, he would be sitting with a bunch of people and I didn't know what to say or anything like that. Um, I really, I guess, didn't, meet him or really talk to him till this movie and uh yeah so cool i got to know him you know more on his movie now barbara walters was a big character of yours and recently you got to do her final episode of the view barbara walters i remember and this is something i've learned to thank for um i got i remember um Tim Hurley, he came down my first year of SNL and he's like, uh, Lauren wants you to do Barbara Walters. And, you know, I was naive and I'm just thinking, oh, how that's so sweet, how flattering. And I go, hey, listen, I don't do impressions. Believe me, <laughs> I would suck. Anybody else is going to be better. And then he came down like again the next day and he goes, hey, Lauren really wants you to do Barbara Walters. And I was like, oh, it's so sweet. But listen, dude, I've got nothing on her. I do not do impressions. And I'm sure somebody else might have a better, ha might have at least a take. And then the next day he comes down and he goes, um, Sherry, Lauren, and, and I go, uh, and he goes, no, uh, Sherry, you don't understand. You're going to be doing Barbara Walters. You know? And I was like, oh, oh, okay. And he's like, we really weren't asking. <laughs> Like, he was like, he's like, well, leaned into me and he said, Sherry, he's really not asking. <laughs> and I go, oh, oh, I thought, 
you were asking. And he goes, no, he's not. <laughs> and so then I remember thinking, oh, shit. And I just started watching tapes over because I just thought to myself, Gilda Ratner did her so well and I'm never gonna be able to. So I just tried to do a different take on it. And uh, it was really hard because I grew up watching her and especially, you know, her specials and everything like that. And it's hard because she's so good at what she does. But what I what I gathered from her in the beginning was I started looking at her style, which I should have been studying more her mannerism. But she would give people in, a, in an interview three compliments and then she would go in for the kill. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful way to I watched her make people's guards come down. She would say, you're like, you're a concert pianist. You're an Emmy nominated for the TV film, uh, white girl, black boy, uh, and you're a hip hop mogul. Why the porn? <laughs> you know, so what she would do was she would compliment, but specific compliments. They weren't just like, you're such a great actress. And nobody, an actor loves it when they feel understood, when someone knows more than what everybody knows about, you know, um, and she would really gain their trust. And it was only till after she gained their trust and you could tell her feeling it out that she would go in. It's been said about you. And I quote, which I love because when she does that, it's not her saying it. You know, it's like on Andy Cohen on Watch What Happens Live. Uh, Rebecca from Illinois says, you know, and, and it just because I said that when I was on uh, Andy's show, I go, thank God it's Rebecca from Illinois and not you because I'm my feelings might get hurt, you know, but she did. She did that. And it's been said about you. And I quote, when I started doing her on the show, it's almost like I got to understand how to do her as I went. And really it was just the accent that she had. Uh, and I was started, I would write, when I would write Barbara, I would write ER and UR because she would say, cursed, first, worst person. And that's how I got the accent, you know, her little bit of an accent um, or speech impediment. Uh, and then it was really her mannerisms and the way she directed questions and that I started doing and I had more fun doing her than I could have ever imagined. And the funniest thing is like, you know, Lorne believed that I could do it. And I have him to thank for all that, all the fun that I had doing her and then being able, and, then the, and being able to be on her last day was... Such a highlight of my life. Where you interviewed her as her. Yeah. They called me and they said, do you have any ideas? Um, well, first I've got to give props to my cousin, Mary from Jersey, who actually called the show and said, um, I heard Barbara's leaving. I think my cousin Sherry should do the show. Um, and, uh, and that's how I got it. So thank you, Mary. Um, but she's, uh, he said, do you have any ideas? And I go, oh, my God, ever since I heard the announcement that she's leaving, like I have three different ideas. But I think the one I'd really like to do most is being her interviewing her. And I didn't know what to expect. 
Um, I wrote it with one of the writers and it was, uh, I just truly did not. She was so gracious and leaned over and said, thank you for doing this. And I, it was a wonderful experience. And she actually said, she looked at her monitor. We were both sitting across from each other, knees to knees. And she looks at her monitor and she sees, and she said, my hair is a mess. And then immediately the hairdresser runs over and then he goes, oh, Barbara, that's Sherry's monitor. <laughs> well, she started cracking up. If you could have seen like Barbara Walters crack up at herself, I was so happy because that's how we started you know and i'm like and i keep making her laugh i'm like thanks a lot (laughs) she's you know it's awesome yeah snoop dog snoop dog was such a funny story because i remember he was the musical guest and i was wanting so bad to do a sketch with him as barbara walters you know uh and I remember I wrote the sketch and we didn't read through. And one of the writers said, you are so crazy for, you know, putting him in a sketch. You don't know if he's going to want to do it. You don't know if he's going to show up. You don't know if he's going to be able to, you know, um, when Snoop, when Snoop, was because at Snoop SNL, had never acted that I ever saw never before. acted. And when he was at SNL, literally you'd walk past his dressing room and you'd get a contact high. Um, yeah. And then I wrote it and it got in. To the show. And I could not have been more excited. I was so proud of it. And um, then Snoop comes in the next day to do a, a, a rehearsal uh, sound check. And he wants to see me. So I go down <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was, I was high by the time I left. <laughs> and it was funny. It was very dark and it was smoke filled. And there was a woman cornrowing his hair. And then when I walked in, and all the smoke and everything he goes, I'm sorry, I hope you don't mind. And I go, oh, no, not at all. But she's going to keep doing my hair. <laughs> and I went, and I'm thinking he's talking about the smoke. <laughs> yeah, I really am uh, appalled <laughs> at these cornrows <laughs> while I'm trying to meet with you. So he, um, we, you know, he's like, this is really funny, man. And I love that he, you know, he loved it. And we did a rehearsal that day and everybody was like, he's going to pull out, Sherry. What do you see? Or he's not going to do it. Or, you know, they're not taking this seriously, you know. Um, And I just said, I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, I really wasn't. I was really putting all my eggs in that basket because that's all I had in. And uh, so they put us... At the dress show, the very last sketch, which, which means which? they don't, the dress show is where they put on 11 sketches and like three get cut That's for right. the air show. Sometimes five. Sometimes five. And so. And the last sketch. And the, the last go in the dress show is the one that they don't hold out hope for. That's correct. So we were last in dress and I'm like, all right. And I remember doing it. He was flawless with what I wanted him to do flawless and funny the funny thing was all through the week he would say to me he would see me in the hallway and he goes hey Shara could you put uh, one of my cousins in the sketch and I'm like oh shit and I go uh, uh yes Snoop yeah and then I swear to you the next day hey Shara could you put my other cousin um in the sketch and I'm just like uh, uh sure 
And then it was the day of the show. Sherry, could you put my other cousin in there? And I'm like, what? And I'm thinking, how the fuck am I going to do this? So what I did was I had them all standing in back of us while we were sitting down being interviewed. And I say, Snoop, um, with your your bodyguard here, I feel very safe. From what? I don't know. (laughs) And it was perfect. I said, just dress those guys in suits and tell them to put their hands behind their backs. You know, and it worked out perfectly and he was flawless. And then um, after after the sketch, I walked off and he walked off and we just ran into each other's arms. Like, here's a snoop, like tough guy and everything like that. And we were like smiling and laughing. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm so happy. And he lifted me up. And then here we go in to see what's on the uh, on the main show, how it's set up. We were the first sketch out. Incredible. And it was one of those things where, you know, I mean, I imagine it was maybe how like Steve Korn felt when he got, you know, it was just no one's holding out hope, you know, and, you know, it's like uphill. And I barely had a writer that wanted even to write with me. I wrote it and then the guy I was writing with bailed. You know, I this thing I remember about the sketch so vividly was you as Barbara picking up your pocketbook from the ground and putting it next to you and holding it tight. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that was I didn't do it in dress. We, it wasn't rehearsed. And I remember because the sketch went so well that they didn't get it on camera on the air show. And Beth McCarthy afterwards The said, director. Yeah, Beth, uh, who's amazing. I love her. She's amazing. She runs up to me after. She goes, what did you do? What did you do? And I go, I picked up my purse. She goes, but you didn't do that. I go, I know I didn't rehearse it. It just felt right in the moment when she was looking back at the, the bodyguards, you know, and I just kind of leaned down and picked it up <laughs> thinking it was like this small move, but the camera didn't catch it, but the audience did. Um, and I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> awesome. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.